ladies and gentlemen, hello. Welcome to the LSE for today's uh, event, uh, which forms part of the uh, Space for Thought Literary Festival, uh, which has been running all week with the theme of revolutions. Uh, my name is James Spackman. I'm a book publisher. Um, I'm a publisher of a new imprint of cycling books called uh, Pursuit, which is part of Profile Books. Um, I'll introduce the panel shortly, but uh, just to let you know that our theme today is London Bike City, or London Bike City question mark, uh, and we'll be examining the appeal of cycling, uh, the state of cycling in London and its future. Uh, as you can see from the screen, uh, if you're on Twitter um, or other social media, the hashtag is uh, LSE Lit Fest, um, but please do put your phone on silent because uh, the event is being recorded today for a potential podcast and it sounds as though the only reason they wouldn't use the podcast is if we were interrupted by lots of dodgy ringtones. So please put your phones on silence so that doesn't happen. Um, now, it's my great honour to introduce uh, our panel of three people, all of whose work I've followed for many years, uh, and several of whose books I have bought with my own money. Um, and I urge you to do the same, by the way, uh, because their books are for sale in the foyer. Um, now, Michael Hutchinson... Uh, will be known to many of you as Dr. Hutch uh, from his fantastic column in the back of uh, Cycling Weekly. Um, his racing career as a, as a racing cyclist has yielded uh, well over 30 titles to date. That's correct, isn't it? Well over 50, as the number oh I normally go with. Okay, yeah. better update your website then. Um, including uh, what practically amounted to a, a, a residency uh, in the National 50 Mile Time, tri time Trial Championship. Uh, as, long as, as well as two heroic attempts at the hour record uh, before it became fashionable. Although also sort of after it became fashionable. There was a bit in the middle where nobody was doing it apart from you. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Yes. Uh, and I, that, was, I was the nadir of the hour record. You, you were. I'd, I'd, I'd thank you for doing that. And uh, that uh, story forms um, the core of his book, The Hour, which uh, I've always thought should be issued to all uh, cycling fans. Uh, and his most recent book is uh, out officially on the 23rd of March, but um, we've got copies here for sale today, and it's called Recyclists. And Emily Chappell, um, her first book, uh, of many I hope, uh, is called What Goes Around, uh, an account of life as a London cycle courier, um, describing that very specific uh, subculture, while also saying some very, very uh, universal things about the city uh, and the physical and mental essence of cycling. Um, since uh, retiring, do we say retiring as a cycle courier? Or, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. anyway, giving up temporarily, hoping yeah. it's for good. Um, Emily's been uh, focusing on uh, exploits with a capital E and deeds with a capital D, uh, including around the world um, bike trip uh, and also um, the transcontinental um, race, uh, which is an absolutely extraordinary event, uh, and she was the fastest uh, female finisher uh, last year, uh, having ridden nearly 4,000 kilometres in about 13 and a half days, uh, which sounds horrendous to me. Uh, she's also a founder member of the Adventure Syndicate, which is an extremely inspiring organisation. And finally, uh, Dr Rachel Aldred, uh, renowned in the world of transport policy, um, which is a world she uh, approaches from the perspective of a sociologist rather than an economist or an engineer, uh, which is a, a distinction that we might return to. Uh, she's reader in transport at the University of Westminster, which, I don't know, does this mean that you're, you're on kind of enemy territory here? Is there beef between the University of Westminster <laughs> and LSE? I'm not an academic, so I don't know. I was at LSE for a year. Right, fine, so there won't back, be any trouble so. in the bar after. <laughs> fine, OK, well, that's good to know. Um, She's published extensively in the field of uh, sustainable transport, particularly cycling, 
um, and her activities extend, uh, extend well beyond uh, academia. Uh, she's chair of London Cycling Campaign's Policy Forum uh, and has launched many uh, extremely influential initiatives, including the Near Miss uh, initiative. So, ladies and gentlemen, your panel... Now, after our discussion, uh, there will be a good opportunity for you to ask questions uh, to the whole panel, um, but I'm going to kick off uh, by asking each of you in turn uh, to share, us, share with us what is your best and worst London cycling moment ever. Michael. Me? Um, oh, OK. Um, best? <sighs> I mean, I did get some warning of this, so I did have a chance to think about it, and I, I noticed a the theme, because the first one I thought of was out-sprinting Bradley Wiggins in the final of a race in Hillingdon mm. and the second one I thought was out sprinting Bradley Wiggins in a finals of a race at Hearn Hill right. uh, and I noticed a pattern was developing um, uh, and then the other ones I could think of were all Brompton related because I remember overtaking um, on my Brompton with a briefcase and a, a suit and a tie overtaking a man in full sky regalia on a, a, a Pinarello dogma with the carbon wheels and all the rest of it um, just outside Millbank Tower um, and he really didn't like it he didn't like that at all. And, and then I thought that reflected slightly badly on me. So my answer to... I think we are judging you, yes. to, to, to my best London um, cycling experience is probably late one night, um, I was coming down the Charing Cross Road, and I met two other Bromptonists. Mm. And about midnight, on a winter night, we swooped down, off, down from Charing Cross Road, green lights the whole way across Trafalgar Square and out through Admiralty Arch and it felt like being part of a very tight little group of fold up mobs there was something there was something rather lovely about it and, and that I were you in arrowhead formation I, yes pretty much I, I, that I enjoyed um, so I think that's I'm, I'm going to offer that as my best London cycling experience my worst London cycling experience I'm going to offer as being knocked off my bike in Richmond Park um, and discovering when I got to hospital, the man who'd knocked me off was the A&E consultant from the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a little awkward. Yeah. Absolutely. Emily? Uh, it's very hard to choose the best moment, so I've got a lot of tales of annoying roadies and... Um, I think I, I'll settle for a sort of melange of moments, which is those rides home after a week's work on the road after maybe a pint or half a pint, um, mm. riding along the dark streets when it's very quiet and very late on my bike with not a sound around me, and I have the whole place to myself and the air is cool and fresh and I feel like I'm flying, and that's wonderful. That's happened many times and I hope it will happen many times again. The worst moment um, for me, there are a few again, but I think probably the, the biggest... The time I was the most frightened and unhappy and upset was one week, which I mentioned in my book, where I had a couple of nasty run-ins with drivers. And there was a moment where, less than 24 hours after we'd had a bit of a confrontation, a driver, a taxi driver, um, found me again elsewhere in town. And he was actually quite friendly. Like, our confrontation hadn't quite upset him the way it had upset me. So he just said... Hey, it's me! Do you remember? And then had a bit of a word with me about how I was being a terrible cyclist and things. Um, and that was a bit annoying. And then as he walked off, I had this horrible feeling of dread because it suddenly hit me at that moment. If I ever do have a, an unpleasant experience with a cabbie, which was a fairly regular occurrence when I was a cycle courier, they could find me again. I'm very, very visible. I'm a, a young woman riding around on a bright yellow bike. I'm on the road 50 hours a week 
And I'd always had this feeling that I could just disappear into the city and I was safe. And then I realised, no, they, they can find me if they need to. If anyone ever had a vendetta, it would be very easy to carry it out. And thankfully, no one ever has, but that was a bit of a moment. Okay, I'll start with the worst moment. Um, Then I was thinking about this as I was cycling in because it it happened along the route that I cycle in along and there's a mini roundabout. And if people cycle around mini roundabouts, you know that sometimes drivers tend to forget that the priority rules also apply to bikes, I find. (laughs) Anyway, this particular time that I was cycling through it, I was in a bit of a rush, I was late for a train and I probably wasn't paying quite as much attention as I would otherwise because I know this mini roundabout has, has some issues. So I'm cycling through it. I have right away cycling through it and suddenly I realised that a driver is coming onto the roundabout and he obviously has looked and failed to see as they put it so he's coming on towards the roundabout Um, he is not going to stop in time there is nothing I can do and I see him look at me and he's like I am going to hit this woman and the only question is what speed he hits me at and I'm I'm lucky he manages to slow down very very quickly and hits me at about two or three miles an hour and I gently just sort of kind of slightly stumble off my bike a little bit but it affected me really strongly it was nothing that would be recorded in any statistics you know nobody was injured but that moment when I could see him and I knew that he wasn't going to be able to stop just terrified me because there was nothing that I could do and that I guess has influenced me because I am really interested in those kind of things that don't get recorded that are you know happening every day and have a big impact on people the best moment this was I I thought of a whole load of things one thing that I could remember was um, on a critical mass once when going down the mall and um, somebody was playing YMCA and seeing a whole group (laughs) of guys doing the YMCA thing along the mall so that one is a lovely one but I think really my all-time top one at the moment just has to be cycling along the um, east-west superhighway on the embankment for the first time and thinking I cannot believe that this is actually here and thinking of all the people who had made that happen and I, I almost started crying I was really quite emotional about that so that was that was lovely thank you I think we can all probably relate to most of those apart from beating Bradley Wiggins in a sprint um now pulling back from London uh, experiences just for a moment what What's the appeal for us, for the, for the panel, uh, of cycling at all? I mean, if you had to explain to a Martian why it's good, Rachel. Um, well, one thing I'd say is that I can, I can eat what I like and I don't have to worry about exercising. And another is just the, the sort of everyday, Emily touched on it, the sort of everyday interactions. That just as I was cycling here, in fact, um, somebody I know sort of came out of his house and started running towards me and said, oh, are you going to that event? Should I come to this event? And that, that kind of human-scale interaction is, is just so attractive. I love London, I love the city, and I love having those kind of things where you just smile at people, you, 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 know, you interact with them, and a bike facilitates that and you can't do that in a car Agree. for me I think I could give you a really long answer but there are other people to speak um, I would say freedom and capability and the two are kind of related and related to a lot of other things so you have the freedom to go where you want to get there yourself in london specifically you're not tied into tube timetables or late buses or you don't have to do this thing where you think well you know the bus will take that long then i've got to walk between there and your journey becomes this kind of you're partly in control of it and partly not and you feel very kind of tied and we all we all know that i'm sure we all cycle as well so there's that and in a broader sense as well I feel that my life has sort of opened up since I started cycling. And also, I've been on a bike for 11 years now. The sense of capability, I feel, 
more and more every year. I really feel like I could take on the world. I started off commuting, and that was almost the biggest moment for me when I realised I could do it, I could get myself from there to there. And then being a courier, you're on your own, you're in control, you don't have really anyone to kind of pick you up or anyone to defer to. You've got to make it happen and you've got to get this object from this place to this place and navigate all these obstacles. And after a few years of that, I realised, well, I think I want to cycle around the world and I actually know that I can do it. And I think for a lot of people, and I think a lot of women... knowing that you have it in you to do this thing that you want to do is quite a big thing. I don't always feel like that. So there's, yeah, I'll I'll stop there, I think. Freedom and capability. Um, I think there there are two things. A a friend of mine not long ago bought a convertible car. And his justification for this was he wouldn't argue with his wife in a convertible, which sort of makes sense. If you think about the car with the roof, it's a different, it's a connectedness to the environment you're in. And I think that's, that's one of the things I love about cycling is that you're not insulated from the environment mm-hmm. you're in. That applies in the city, it applies in the country, it applies anywhere. You, you can see and hear everything. And you can combine that with the fact that you can be anything from a slightly faster version of a pedestrian all the way up to in a city, you can be the fastest thing on the road. So you, know, you can be anything... And you're, you're, part of, you're part of the world you're in. And, and I love that flexibility and that connectedness. Mm. And, I mean, you, you, you could probably phrase that as just freedom, which is sort of what that expression ends up feeling like. Mm. But when you try and break it down, it's that, it's that connection and, and it's, it's that flexibility and this feeling of power mm. because you, you attack the city and you can be anywhere. You can look around and you think, well, I can be anywhere in London faster than you can, mate, because... Mm. I will go by bicycle, and, and that's very, you know... It, it takes a, a fairly catastrophic uh, incident on the roads to, to, stop a, to stop a cyclist, doesn't it? Well, and I mean, I, I do most of my riding in London, I do on a Brompton. Mm. So, absolute worst comes to worst, I can fold it up, stick it under my arm and run. Mm. <laughs> Which is a, a wonderful image. The, um, <laughs> the, the sensory thing is, uh, is very interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm often struck that you, you know, whereas you have a, a low horizon in a car... Mm. You know, in a, on a bike, you, you see stuff, don't you? Uh, upper windows, public art, etc. And, and you, you smell and, things. And you hear stuff. Well. Yeah, right. and you smell things, and you can, you can feel the air. Is it a cold day? Is it a hot day? If it's mm. a windy day, you can feel that, and you're, you're part of that. And it's very, I don't know, very new agey, but there's something, there's something nice about that. Well, then, I think the, I mean, you mentioned the, uh, the, the cycle superhighway. I mean, I. I realised when I was on the on the embankment uh, a little while ago that I actually find it quite a, almost like a meditative journey, which you know is quite an extraordinary thing to have, isn't it? Just you know, very very smooth, you know, just yeah. I mean, just mentally, it's uh, it's quite striking. I think it's incredible. It's, it's experience that we don't have often enough in this country. Mm. Is that that sort of sociable, relaxing cycling? I remember um, cycling with some students. Actually, it was a long. Um, along the Mile End Road and it was when they built the cycle superhighway to extension but they hadn't redone the other bit so basically we were on a really fast unpleasant road um, right up till the Bow Roundabout and then we were on this kind of um, environment that was more like um, the Embankment Superhighway and one of my students um, who was Dutch was just you could see him just relax and he was you know uh, but also we were we were faster then as well mm. we, funnily enough we weren't kind of you know just getting stuck behind stuff so it was it really was a lovely experience and I think that kind of that, that piece is something that mm. you can really experience cycling too. Mm. 
And the, the, the connectedness um, that, that you, you mentioned, uh, in fact, you, you both mentioned, I mean, do you think, you know, from a sort of a, a sociological point of view, do you think that's a, a kind of a, a, a good of cycling? Do you think that people do interact with others more than, I mean, almost yeah. certainly more than drivers? But I mean, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't ensure that, you know, mm. that happens. It, it means that that is possible, and it depends upon, um, it depends upon the cycling environment, uh, which is infrastructure, but also a whole range of other things, uh, like driver behaviour. And I really noticed that on my route into work, the, the, the bit through Hackney, Islington and Camden is mostly not too bad, and then you hit City of Westminster, and suddenly it's head down. It's like you cannot dawdle, you cannot smile, you cannot just sort of interact with people in that same way. So I think if we build this huge human-scale city that enables these kind of interactions, the benefits will be massive. I mean, it'll be much better for cycling, but also just much better for the city and for everyone if we create those kind of calm environments where people can, uh, don't have to be constantly you know, looking behind them and wondering what's about to hit them. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, thinking more specifically about cycling in London, how would you all kind of characterise it at the moment, does it does it work? Um, and, and and if cycling in London works at all, is it does it work despite the city, despite the way it is, or because of it? What, what's your feeling about it at the moment, Emily? I have probably, well, probably slightly a controversial view on it because <coughs> I see at the moment cycling in London is kind of in a transitional period. So we have the olden days where there was no cycling infrastructure at all, and there were these kind of this sparse band of bandits who were nipping in and out of the traffic like the traditional image of the cycle career and then we have the city of the future which will be entirely bike lanes almost no motorised traffic and a lot of happy people riding along having conversations and at the moment we're, we're somewhere in between the two there's some really lovely bits where you can ride for miles on segregated cycle lanes and it's wonderful and it takes you where you want to go there's some really badly designed ones that take you where you want to go via everywhere else, which I'm not so fond of. Um, And there's also still quite a lot of riding in with traffic. Um, I think it's always worked, it's just it works very differently. And one thing I'm finding in this transitional period is I have this, what I best describe as a guilty nostalgia for the days where it was me racing against the traffic... And I find I still have much more of an instinct for how the traffic works. So when when you ride in it as much as I used to, slightly less so now, you develop this, what everyone says, oh, it's sixth sense. You you know, your senses just become very, very attuned to the traffic, how it behaves. You develop these instincts and they say, you know, couriers can see into the future and you can't. You've just got very, very good at predicting exactly what these 11 different elements of traffic are going to be doing 10 seconds ahead and all of that. And it's a wonderful feeling um, when you've got all of that in place and you can more or less switch off your constant mind, conscious mind and just launch yourself into the traffic and know that you can flow through with it. And I find I still love that and I miss it when I'm toddling placidly along a cycle lane. And I find other cyclists quite unpredictable. I don't feel actually at, as at ease as I would in traffic because traffic is quite easy to predict. And although cars can move quite fast and they can be quite heavy, they actually they can't jump to the side suddenly. And if the traffic is, is snarled up, there's a very limited number of movements a vehicle is going to make. So, I mean, one of my um, 
manoeuvres I wouldn't tell people about so much is I would undertake a large vehicle, for example, if I know the traffic around it and I know the lights ahead of it and I know there is no likelihood it's going to move anywhere in the next 30 seconds because it's certainly not going to suddenly go like this. Whereas other cyclists are a little bit more dodgy, I feel. And it could just be that I'm going to have to redevelop my instincts and eventually I will have this sixth sense with riding with other people and I will just know that that person's going to turn right without indicating but it might take a while to get there. You'll know that that tourist on a, on a Boris bike is going to start FaceTiming his yeah. girlfriend. They, they, they usually are anyway I've got that one. Do you think you're, that, that instinct, I mean does that, does that fade away if you haven't been riding in London? Because I know It does. Yes, it does. I've, um, I've been living in Wales for the last year and a bit, and I come back to London and it does feel... It's like putting on an, an old pair of shoes. It's really familiar and comfortable. At the same time, I notice that I ride much more conservatively mm. and I am taking fewer risks. And it changes every time I come here. There's a new cycle superhighway, there's a new junction layout. I get yelled at by drivers for not being in the bike lane because there wasn't one there last time I was here. I find I'm riding alongside a bike lane thinking, oh, I should yes. get into that. And there's a strange sense of... I have a sense of embarrassment because when I was a courier, it was um, you knew the city. You, had the, you didn't have the map in your head, you just had the feeling of everything. And this sense of pride attached to that. And now I find I'll go around a corner and think, oh, the junction's different, and feel embarrassed that I don't know because it's my job to know. It's not anymore, but it was. And Michael, would you share that that kind of sense of mastery? I mean, well, I mean, the, 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 the question was whether cycling in London works, wasn't mm, it? And mm. I, I think, it, but I think it depends who you are, which is sort of what what Emily's saying. Um, I first started riding in London more than twenty years ago, when it was like the Wild West. Um, um, most of what I did at that point, I, had a, I lived in Battersea and I, I was at the beginnings of being a serious cyclist. I used to go, my commute was to Richmond Park to train, so I had a kind of five mile commute to Richmond Park, do half a dozen laps to Richmond Park and go home. And you, I would always want to stick to the same route because I've developed the same kind of instinct for the traffic on that route. As soon as I took a different route, I was suddenly a bit, ooh, I wasn't sure where I was going because you just don't know. The route you know all the time, you know that that junction is the one where this guy's going to got it all in your head um and i agree there was an excitement to it um you did feel like you were you know there was kind of a space cowboy feel to the thing you felt exciting and dynamic and as if you were not quite of the city um and i I agree that that i missed that slightly um actually there used to be a guy who lived opposite me who wrote a penny farthing to his job in the city every day um with a polo mallet and he would use the polo mallet for propping himself up at traffic lights so he doesn't have to get off. And I love to think of him stabbing vengefully through a sunroof occasionally with the polo mallet of people who had displeased him. And as he was riding, was the polo mallet just he was over jauntily the shoulder, over, over the, the shoulder? shoulder. Yeah. Wonderful sight. Um, and I imagine he could have taken a swing at a small dog to, to considerable effect, for example, um, and, and, and children. And the temptation like must be almost... Um, and, 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 and I bet you he doesn't like cycling in London now as much as he did. Because, right. I, I, actually, I saw Penny Farthing in the... Um, bike lane on, 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 the, on the embankment. I was going one way, and, and, uh, and coming towards me, there was a, a ferocious bright light about 12 feet off the ground. <laughs> and I thought the aliens had arrived. And I got closer, and I could see, and it was a, a penny-farthing rider with a light on his helmet. Um, he was, he's about your height, so he clearly just doing it to scare the bejesus out of the little people. But, um, uh, but it's, it's cycling, it works differently for different people. Um, and ultimately... 
where cycling has to go in London is to work as well as it can for the largest number of people. It's a utilitarian thing. Um, and that is going to change how it works. Um, and I think some people, particularly the young, the confident, the fit, the aggressive, are going to like it less. Mm. And I, I, but I, I, that doesn't mean I want to stay with the old days. Mm. I think that's necessary. So the way I feel about it is back in the olden days, drivers could do what they wanted and probably have a great time roaring around the streets and now there's all these rules and these traffic with, with goggles and to... string back gloves <laughs> and, yes. yes exactly and now yeah. you have to stop for pedestrians rather than just run them down and there was there was um, Lord um, Brabazon who was the transport minister in the 1930s they were talking about um, cycle safety and road safety because there were so many pedestrians and, and cyclists getting killed by cars and his argument was that in the early days of motoring he was forever picking chicken feathers out of the radiator of the car <laughs> and chickens had learned to get out of the way you just kill enough chickens they learn and his argument was that if you just killed enough pedestrians and cyclists they would eventually work it out <laughs> well that did actually work in a sense if you look at what happened to cycling <laughs> levels and walking right. levels people did start getting exactly. out of the way of cars i just wanted to pick up a bit on um, emily's sort of transition um idea because i think it is uh, it's, it's quite interesting to look back and to see how far we've come because london was always seen as the place in this country where you had to be crazy to cycle mm. i remember people you know in leeds or somewhere that actually you know places that are potentially actually riskier saying oh you cycle in london you must be so brave um and now we're in a situation where where places other parts of the country people um planners will say oh we can't do that we're not London, we can't put in bike lanes, we're not London. So it's really interesting how those perceptions change. And London doesn't have a history of, as a bike city in the way that many other places do. You know, London was always, um, a, you know, it's a suburban city with public transport, very important. It never had the high levels of cycling that you got in some smaller towns. So the sort of turnaround we've, we've seen, I think, is really remarkable. We've got a long way to go, but um, the potential is definitely there. I've been involved in a project called the Propensity to Cycle Tool, where we're looking at cycling potential across the country and one of the scenarios that we're using called go dutch basically uses dutch cycling propensities so sort of says you know for each trip the distance and hilliness if we were as likely to cycle as the dutch what would cycling levels be and one thing that's really interesting when we look at that across local authorities london comes out as having really strong potential i didn't necessarily expect that but the kind of trips that londoners make are really in themselves very open to cycling in terms of the distance you know we travel less far than people in many parts of the country plus we have um, often the alternatives are slower so we have you know there's a lot of factors that make cycling in london potentially a wonderful proposition but obviously we've still got a long way to go to get there mm. and does it do we think that it, it, it used to feel almost re- rebellious or kind of countercultural? i mean you talk about the wild west and, and i think like, a little yeah mm. it was something it had an excitement to it precisely because you weren't sitting in a car, which mm. was the norm. You were doing something that was unusual and that you had clearly chosen to do something that was unusual and, and distinctly edgy. Yeah, mm. I think it was... And if you were young and you were fit, and you could, you know, you could take the lane, you could ride at 20 miles an hour or 30 mm. miles an hour if that was what it was called for, then mm. it was fantastic. But it's, that, that's, not a, that's, a, that's not a means of transport. That's an mm. extreme sport. Mm. It's like commuting by cannon. <laughs> or Penny Farthing. Or Penny Farthing, yeah. And, and that seems to be changing, doesn't it? I mean, because I, I, I agree with you, uh, Rachel, that it, it's not the first thing that somebody says now when you, when you say that you, you, know, you cycled somewhere in London, oh my God, you must be mad. Um, 
So, you know, perhaps that's... They're, they're much of, angrier with you now. Right, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, watching how cycling has developed. So when I was getting into cycling in London... There were a lot of people, there was a big internet community and internet forums and things, and a lot of it was based around inner city, urban, often fixed gear riding, and that was how people kind of bonded. They went to the pub, they locked up their fixies outside, and then they rode home through the streets. And now I think all the same people who were doing that are getting into different things. They're going on longer rides out of the city, they're getting into ultra-distance racing, they're going mountain biking, um, because partly they've moved on, they've developed the cyclists and started to find other ways of enjoying it. And partly, I think, cycling in London is maybe not the thrilling countercultural thing right. it was. And maybe not the, not the kind of the sense of discovery that you would have before, because it's actually quite a common thing. And you see more and more representations in the media of people, ordinary people cycling. It's now, rather than something they do, it's sometimes mm. something you do. The way adverts talk to you, it's like, you know, you're on your bike. You're going to have this And there are a lot of bicycles and adverts for other things mm. these days. And that's, I mean, in some ways, that's, that's kind of part of the victory, is the idea that somebody advertising a car wants to advertise a car by having somebody putting a bike on the back of it. Right, OK. You know, because it's not a bike. It's not an advert for a bike. It's an advert for something else. It happens to have a bike on it. Nice Indeed. And, Rachel, just um, picking up on, on what you were mentioning about the the, uh, the, the the go Dutch idea how do you think I mean obviously there are other capital cities in the world with more infrastructure with more of a um, uh, with more of a, a tradition of cycling but do you think do you think London's moving from you know what one kind of archetype of a city to another I mean how, how do you think it currently compares with other other cities other capitals I mean, we are very much still in that transition stage and, um, you know, other cities are doing some really bold stuff, some of the restrictions on car movements that have been put in place in other cities. But I hope that competition between the cities will help, you know, push London um, to do more because we have had we have had a really impressive mode shift away from the car in London, um, largely towards public transport. And that was by radically improving the public transport experience, by prioritising public transport. If we can do that for walking and cycling as well, then there is the potential to have really really substantial change i think one thing that's going to be important actually is e-bikes in london with um in the propensity to cycle tool we add on um the potential for e-bikes for people to cycle using e-bikes and there are a million e-bikes sold in places like germany every year and in outer london that could be really important as well and also help democratize cycling which we need to do through infrastructure as well but i think um i think e-bikes will be and because they would they'd increase the, the sort of the, the range that people would be prepared to cycle and, and people who are less less able or less fit or whatever they would it, would it would still be viable for them yeah it just opens up a lot more a lot more possibilities for people and in the netherlands it keep, it helps keep people cycling for longer as well cycling right. into their 80s the rates of cycling um, among older people if um, in the netherlands are really um, really something you look at the graphs and you see that whereas here you know cycling declines with age you're very unlikely to see older women um, cycling in many parts of the country but in the Netherlands you get a drop in cycling among young adults which is when they're getting driving licenses they're starting to drive and then it starts to increase again as a percentage of trips um, and that shift, we're still... It's interesting how you can see some of the policy discourse changing as well and some of the ways in which the planners are talking about cycling and are framing it differently. We're still not quite there, but, you know, they, they clearly um, there's an understanding that we need to radically transform not just the level of cycling but also who cycles. 
And there's also an age demographic element to, to that. Is there also a class element? I mean, I, I, I sometimes have a suspicion that, that you know, maybe the middle-class cyclist is, is being prioritised over, you know, like the, the route from Barnes to the city, for instance, you know, seems pretty straightforward, but is it the same for... That's a really interesting issue, and it's something where in the US um, there's been quite a lot of work around cycling and equity and some some really interesting papers that I've read looking at where the bike infrastructure is and is it serving the trips that all communities want to make. And partly it's part of a wider problem, I think, in transport planning as well, that we often focus on the commute. We focus, I mean, I guess um, I'm guilty of this too, but it's partly because that's where the the best data is collected. We focus on the commute, and there's an idea that the commute is A to B, and this is not just for cycling, for all modes. And that prioritises some people's trips over others so if you look at women in their 30s for instance of you know much of a, a pretty small proportion of their trips are commutes compared to men in their 30s and obviously then if you look at older people it changes again so there's a whole load of problems within transport planning that are not just cycling but then sort of interact with um, with cycling and I think we need to do a lot more around equity analyses and looking at what trips we're building for and not just building for commuting I did like the idea. I thought for a second you were going to suggest having first-class commuting bike lanes and second-class oh. bike lanes. <laughs> I'm thinking what a first-class bike lane versus a second-class bike lane would be like. Could we have a fast lane? I'd really like that. Oh, yeah, would I'd, you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what would be the... Uh, and would it be just purely elective, whether, whether you went in that lane? Oh, it would get very oh, you'd be aggressive able to, and political. You'd be able to smite it? people out of your way with a bike pump. That would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> or your hockey mill. Well, it would get like in the, in the swimming pool Poland. where, you know, there's, yeah. there's always someone in the fast lane who thinks they belong there and don't. Yeah. But... <laughs> Isn't it nice that cycling is so inclusive? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> um, another area that I'm, I'm really interested in about, about uh, cycling in London is, uh, I, I suppose in a way, cycling in, in Britain is the interrelationship between sort of British... Uh, manners, um, just, just standard British behaviour and cycling and whether cycling etiquette, the, the kind of British version of that, whether that's different to maybe other places. I've, I've, got, I've got this pet theory, which I think you possibly disagree with, Rachel, but I think, I think Michael might, might agree with, which is that the, the reason that red lights jumping is, is so... It, it gets people so angry, gets drivers so angry, is, is because it's like queue jumping. It's not that you've cost them anything in particular or inconvenienced them, but, but you are breaking a rule and, and we don't like that, which is quite a British concern. I, I, I would strongly disagree with the idea that the British are this inherently fair play type nation, and I think actually we don't know how to queue this as an aside, but right. I went to Cuba recently and I thought, they're not queuing, they're just all over the place. Actually, no, they are queuing. They ask and find who's the last person right. who's waiting, and then they don't need to stand in a long line, but they are queuing. Right. And we are not the only queuing nation. Fair enough. <laughs> I, the thing is, I mean, I... I kind of agree with you, actually, because I do a certain amount of... I go on radio talk show, shows, and, and, and I'm the insanely aggressive cyclist who probably ultimately does more harm than good. I go on thinking, this time, this is the time I'm not going to lose my temper, and it, it rarely works, which is why they keep rebooking me. Um, <laughs> but when people talk about riding through a red light, I say, well, what's your problem with it? Which is a trap, because it doesn't matter what they say, I'm going to get them either way. So if they say it's dangerous, you might not... So if they say it's dangerous, I will quote reams of statistics about the fact that actually it's not. People, it doesn't kill people, it doesn't hurt people, it's not actually a dangerous thing to do. Because cyclists aren't fundamentally stupid enough to blast through a red light onto a a main intersection without looking. You know, we're not... (laughs) We we may be aggressive and inconsiderate, but we're not stupid. 
Um, so if they say that, I quote them that. And, if, um, and, I, and then they go, oh, well, 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 and I say, well, maybe your problem is just that you don't like people disobeying the rules. And they say, yes, that's it. I don't like people disobeying the rules. And I say, mobile phones, speeding, speeding past schools. And I can just, you know, <laughs> you can get them either way because, it, you know, it, fundamentally people want what they can get off with. People don't obey the rules, out of, or don't obey the laws out of some ethical urge to obey mm. the law. And it's not dangerous. I mean, but that fundamentally is what they want. They regard it as a zero-sum game. This guy's getting something and I'm not getting. Mm. So that somehow, you know, he's getting to work on time and I'm going to be late. So the fact he got there on time makes my being there late worse. Mm. Yes. <laughs> that's how it works. That, that, that seems like quite an accurate reading of the psychology. <laughs> that, that I was in Tokyo a few years ago mm. and I found it really interesting because the traffic there is almost exactly the same as the traffic here. They drive on the same side, the junctions work similarly, the traffic feels the same, and I've got all this, you know, I'm in tune with the traffic, and um, <laughs> it, it just felt the same. It was, it was um, identical, except for the fact that there was no aggression at all. It was like London traffic on Prozac, and that was really nice. And there are bikes everywhere in Tokyo, probably as many as here, maybe more, um, and they ride on the pavements, and they ride across crossings, and they go through red lights, and nobody complains at all. And, you know, you'll be walking along a pavement, and a cyclist will come towards you, and you'll just sort it out the same way as you would if it was a pedestrian. And I went around thinking, why can't we just agree to be like this in London? It's clearly not a problem for anyone. We have almost exactly the same infrastructure, and everyone is totally okay with cyclists doing what they want, and I didn't see any fights at all. And you do invariably bring it back to kind of natural char- national characteristics and say, well, the British are, um, you know, they've got this veneer of ostentatious politeness, but they're really passive-aggressive. Mm. And the Japanese are just kind of, you know, polite and submissive through and through. I don't know if it's that at all. I think it's just maybe it's the way it's evolved. I would like to find a way of having this sort of amnesty and starting to forgive cyclists for all of that. I don't know how But, but it. almost kind of like resetting it behaviourally and sort of saying, right, well, let's, let's try to negotiate around one another as a, as a norm mm. rather than be rulesy and passive-aggressively. Is that because you, still, you get people running down pavements, shouldering other pedestrians out of the way, and you get people queue-jumping and stepping on your toe in the tube and not moving all the way down the carriage and other unforgivable offences. And, <laughs> you know, pedestrians are... I just walked along the South Bank to get here and arrived fuming with road rage. So I don't think cyclists are the worst. Knocking tourists aside. I wasn't. I was just passive aggressively <laughs> behind them while they stopped and consulted their maps and then right. went that way and then went that Did way. Did you tut? Inwardly. You might have tut, yeah. <laughs> mm. um, now, actually, I was going to bring up, Emily, uh, you've said in... in um, what goes around your marvellous book that sometimes the, the the sort of game almost of cycling and traffic after after a, you'd sort of reached a threshold of nasty incidents it, it got that you felt like you were in an abusive relationship with the rest of the city is that where you're rolling your eyes do you regret that phrase now no I don't I don't I think it's I was um, very struck by it I thought, I thought it's a phrase I'd be careful with because I'm sure mm. there are some people who have been in abusive relationships who think it was inappropriate to use but I think there were a lot of similarities and it was actually with me it was more my relationships with pedestrians because I started off when I when I was a courier and I was doing it every day I started off 
not being aggressive, but being a bit more forthright. And if someone got in my way or stepped out in front of me or all the things that people do, I kind of yell loudly at them. I'd usually just say, Oi! Um, to get them to jump and stop and move out of the way. And no one ever apologised, and they'd often swear at me. And I realised that even though this would be a situation where I was in the right and they were in the wrong, they genuinely didn't realise that they were in the wrong. They just saw an aggressive cyclist. And it just happened more and more. And it was one of these things that you think, I'm trying so hard to do the right thing, and I am sticking to all the rules, and everyone is still hating me and so I started kind of adjusting my behavior and rather than just yelling oi I would say something like look where you're going or you know, be careful to sort of imply it's you who's in the wrong and they would still sometimes they'd just say you look where you're going or something like that and I I got ridiculous I mean I got really ridiculous about it I carried a copy of the highway code in my bag and I was waiting for the day when I had an argument with someone and I could say actually I think you're fine the subsection 5F paragraph 2 you can check it if you want I'm, I'm right it never happened thank God because yeah, that would have been I, I actually do something very similar people, the problem is people will never want to stop and talk about it mm. you know nobody actually wants to have this sort of in-depth mm. you can't form like a little citizen's court mm. and then panel a jury yeah. and then once or twice uh, like well once I can think of I had a good argument where we actually kind of I managed to argue him round and it, and we shook hands. Did you ever do what I used to do, which is ride along behind cars, shouting the highway code at them? <laughs> they'd be driving no. along, and if it annoyed you, you would just drive up sort of over like King's Road or something every time they stopped, and just yell in their sunroof. I should have. I think I, I was all, also very keen not to be the aggressive cyclist, so I was always ready mm. to be like, okay, I'm going to be very calm and collected. Yeah. And the thing is, I tried so hard, and I, you know, I, I'd sit there at the lights, look at me, stopped at the lights, <laughs> wanting a round of applause, or at least wanting something and say, well, look at the good cyclist. And uh, I just get grief for all the others who've gone through the lights. And I just started to get really upset that I was trying so hard and I was still public enemy number one. Um, so, yeah, it, it got to me. It was the reason I stopped couriering and ultimately moved out of London, I think, was just that I got fed up with dealing with all of the aggression all the time and realising that I wasn't going to be able to change it. So you have, every time you go out for a ride in London, there'll be something. And sometimes it's a very small thing, and, you know, sometimes it's a really big thing, and sometimes it's a few things. I'd always come home thinking, get over it, get over it, there's no point, you can't change it, leave it behind, breathe deeply, be calm. There's so much work to let go of other people's anger. And I started to realise that just, you know, I'd rather, I lived in South East London, I'd rather go south and go and ride around Kent. And even then, there's, you know, you get a bit of it. So eventually I moved to Wales. But I think it, I don't know, I got tired of it after a while. And I realised as well, a lot of people wouldn't have the option of moving to Wales. So a lot of people might, this, I thought this was quite interesting from a sort of motivation point of view. A lot of people might cycle and might commute by bike for a few years and I know people who've either had a couple of near misses or who've just got fed up with it. And eventually their love of cycling gets overbalanced by the fact that they don't want to be fighting every day. And if they don't have the option to move out of London and cycle elsewhere, they might just give up. 
I was never going to give up cycling, but I could give up London, so I did. I think that's something that's really under-researched as well, is that rate of churn. I mean, um, potentially in London it might be between a quarter to a third um, of turnover each year in terms of people starting, people stopping cycling. And when we talk that. about, potentially from TfL, um, TfL figures, I mean, it does sound, it's, it sounds high, doesn't it? But there's not actually that much in-depth research on it. But I think it's really important because we tend to think, oh, we need to get people cycling, but we need to keep people cycling. People start and then stop again. And when I was doing research on near misses, I was finding that people who knew a cyclist were having, you know, substantially higher rates of near misses. And I, I expect a lot of those people um, just stop and potentially people who keep cycling to some extent get used to it or you know kind of put up with it but I think that the points that um that were being made about sort of how you feel out of place are really important as well because in a sense in this country traditionally um there hasn't been a place where cyclists are accepted you know you're you're getting in the way of the traffic you're on the pavement you shouldn't be doing that so there's always always in a sense in the wrong and I, I it was the title of an article that I wrote where um, I use the phrase um, incompetent or too competent. So as a cyclist, you know, by definition, you're seen as an incompetent road user. You know, you're, some of the associations that cycling has with, say, childhood, with poverty, a whole load of problematic associations that have just stuck. And I think as a nation, we hate children. That's one of the things that I think would be <laughs> our defining national characteristic. We hate children. So we hate cyclists. They're kind of just, you know, what are they doing in the carriageway? You know, they're not on a proper mode of transport. They're by definition a problem. And then people react to that by trying to show that they are competent as a cyclist. But that doesn't work either, because then you become seen as the, you know, you're, you're the lycra lout, you're the keen cyclist at best. And it's really problematic. And I'm, I'm hoping that we're starting to change those things. We're starting to open up the possibility of what being a cyclist can be like. But still, um, you know, I go to a party or something and somebody will start talking about red light jumping. And I'm just like, oh, no, this is just going to spoil the whole evening. And I have to. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a fascinating um, point about. Um, uh, that's a very very challenging point about uh, about the way we see children and uh, and, and that kind of maybe it's just me. That clearly bears study, but but also your previous point about st- stopping people stopping or, or supporting them to carry on mm. uh, if they've had something difficult happen. I think that's that's fascinating because there really isn't anything is there that would that would i mean if you have had a a near miss you know you can report it but you know to who you know even that even that's difficult and that's probably not going to be a an encouraging experience is it so uh i think things are improving to some extent and there's some interesting sort of signs of change in police services actually where they are starting to take these kind of things more seriously and they are um the the west midlands police um close pass initiative which is now being rolled out in other police services i think it's quite interesting because some of those things that actually recognize the experience that people have cycling and actually potentially have some kind of redress but even just recognition that this happens and that this is wrong i I think can help to start break down breaking down sort of car dominance and the assumption that the motorist is always right and I think in London the congestion charge interestingly helped to have some of those kind of impacts by you know you have to if you're going to drive in here you have to pay you do not just have a right to do that and I think slowly chipping away at some of those cultural barriers is really important too. And that that, uh, West Midlands um, the the close pass thing it's fascinating how unusual it is to see a police force tweeting about 
bad driver behaviour. Have you read their cyclists. blog? It's incredible. No, I haven't. <laughs> It's incredible. Like they, well, they have a. Um, the, I think the last post on it I read was where the guy was saying, um, you know, really drivers are all dinosaurs. You know, in the future we'll be walking or cycling or we'll be using modes of transport that are driverless. So, you know, really the sooner we get people away from the wheel of the car, the better. Because traditionally we see police as, as probably, you know, quite at home in a car and, and so therefore probably on, on that side, don't um, So the future, the future of cycling in London, do we expect it to keep growing. Uh, we've touched on some of the changes that we think might, might happen um, in terms of behaviour if it does keep growing. And what would, you, what would you want, how would you want the future to be? You know, if, you were, if you were in charge, if you were despot of all of London, how would you, how would you change it? Anyone? Me? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, I think it will keep growing. I, I, I mean, I feel that cycling in some ways is actually quite vulnerable. Um, and I worry a little bit with some of the... At, at the minute, we're winning. Um, and I worry a little bit that some campaign groups, not most of them, but I worry that some campaign groups are, are not winning with as much grace as they might. And I can understand that because it's been such a long, hard road. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also painfully aware that we are, you know, we are one mare away from all of this disappearing. You know, it can all be taken... I mean, everything we've got can be taken away in a year. Um, and if the infrastructure goes and the whole political momentum that's behind it goes, it could end extremely quickly. And I, I'm, I'm aware that I, know I, I want cycling to keep going in London. And on the whole, I think it will, because it's a very good solution to so many problems. Mm-hmm. But we have, you know, there are, the politics of cycling are very, very complicated. Um, I, I think one of the things that makes cycling politics complicated is that cycling, for most of the 20th century, was a, a very working-class activity. And it's now a very middle-class activity, even, a, even an upper-class activity. And that transformation, that wasn't the case of cycling gradually becoming posher. That was almost, as it seems to me, a dislocation that occurred somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I, I tend to blame mountain biking because mountain bikes appeared. And the people who took up mountain biking weren't ordinary cyclists. People came to mountain biking from windsurfing and rock climbing and surfing and, you know, Mm. Uh, extreme sports type people took up mountain biking so it was a whole different group of people who didn't associate with cyclists and so what that means is that for depending on what generation you're from cycling has got one point of view or another point of view which means that kind of everybody will have a reason to hit cyclists (laughs) it's easy to mobilize the forces against cyclists by picking the right arguments Mm. and it leaves cycling quite vulnerable so I I must admit I do worry about it Mm. I think my um despotic view of the future would be we'd ban all motorised vehicles from London we might let the occasional ambulance in, we'd have very strict laws about delivery drivers going to depots on the outskirts of London and having all their cargo brought in by electric vans and cargo bikes, that's what I do Um, I'm a total radical with this sort of stuff and I think partly to answer your fears um, I would hope and I would put a lot of investment of all sorts into making cycling as diverse as possible because it's not now. Um, I spend all my time whining about the middle-aged men in Lycra. They're still extremely dominant. They're all lovely people. But we need more middle-aged women in Lycra. We need more young black women in Lycra. And we need more young Asian men in Lycra. And and what what do you... I mean, uh, agreed, but what do you think... What kind of initiatives do you think would, would help that? What sort of work do you think needs to be done? 
Well, this, this is interesting stuff. So this is a lot of what the Adventure Syndicate is trying to do. And it has to be a sort of on a granular level. You have to work with individual groups, individual communities and individuals to figure out what they want, what they might want that's different from what you want them to want and how you can work together or support them to help them get there. So I think as, as discussed people will have a lot of reasons for wanting to cycle. Some people want to commute, some people want to go to the shop, some people want to do a sedate couple of laps of a park for exercise in the evenings, and all sorts of other things. And there are different ways for everybody to amalgamate cycling into their lives. So what we can do on a a sort of a bigger level is make cycling more and more of an attractive and obvious and convenient option, which has a lot to do with infrastructure and the availability of things like bicycles, secondhand bikes, bike training and all of that. And a lot lot of that stuff is is happening already. Um, I think in some ways it needs to be done in a more directed way. And then um, on a sort of more micro level... Like there's a lot of, for example, I know Cycling UK does a lot of work with different groups of people in different cities, and sometimes in one city they'll have several different groups they're working with, addressing the specific needs of of the people concerned. Mm. And it sounds like a heck of a lot of work and a lot of sort of investment you have to put in, but I think the benefits are just far beyond anything that you would put into that. Mm. And it will also mean that cycling is a much more stable part like you know won't be able to be taken away by the next mayor because it'll be something everybody does it won't just be something that you can very easily say yeah but it's only like those people it'll be everyone it'll be like driving is now like you can never stereotype drivers because we're all drivers well i'm not but most people are Mm -hmm. interesting that you mentioned cargo bikes actually as part of your despotic solution because i i find it very interesting that it's not that the like the technology to move a lot, quite a lot of stuff on a on a bike has existed for ages, but we just haven't quite been in the habit of doing it. In, in the same way that we kind of weren't in the habit of getting our takeaways delivered by people on bicycles until until we were. And it's you know the, it, it's it's a sort of a, a you know a leap of I don't know perception or habit or whatever. Right, it's not a technological technological thing. And, and Rachel, I know I know you've you've um, considered the sort of the you know the the breadth of use of, of bikes in, in your work and you know cargo bikes and things like that and whether they have a part to play in the like the commercial life of a city as well as just getting to work clearly freight and servicing are massive challenges in london we've only really started to to think about them i mean um tfl have done some really interesting research that's estimated the amount of trips that um freight and servicing trips that households generate and so on and that's really groundbreaking research because it hasn't really been thought about so much and there's a lot of within transport planning you know my disciplines the people who do personal transport the people who do freight transport and even in my department we don't really talk to each other that much it's really it's really frustrating um but certainly those are challenges that need to be taken on and we, we need, you know, we, we're going to need some really dramatic radical change because in London we've got the population growth, we've got the air pollution challenges and air pollution people think can be fixed with a technical fix. It can't be because even if all cars were electric, all vehicles were electric, a lot of the pollution is not, maybe half, is not coming from the tailpipe, it's coming from the wheels and so on, from braking. So we're not going to solve those problems with a technical fix but that's where my hope comes from too because society's only 
sort of make radical changes and when they've got massive problems that they need to deal with. And that's one reason why Transport for London started to think about cycling as an option, was not because it was a nice fluffy thing. It was like, oh no, we're going to have all these people flooding into London. We're going to have massive pressures on the transport network. How are we going to cope? We're not going to cope if they all drive at the same rates that the existing population do. We have to deal with this. So, you know, that, that, that pressure will mean that we will have to find radical solutions. And do you think that it, it, that pressure is strong enough that actually we're not one mayor away from, from all, all the, the advances disappearing? I mean, do, you, do you share the same sense of, of peril? Or? I think there is still a peril. I mean, I, did, um, I recently was, um, led a survey looking at sort of um, cycling stakeholders like planners and so on across England and their views on um, barriers and so on. And you could really see that even places like London, um, like other cities that have made progress, it is still very provisional, it's fragile, it's something that you still feel like it could be taken away. And that's at a political level, it hasn't been mainstream, but also at a planning level, you know, so we have, we've got a few high-profile bike tracks, but it's not mainstreamed into city planning. We don't think about planning for walking, public transport, freight, cycling together and on a strategic level so we still haven't got there and how to do that while at the same time recognising that we need to massively expand cycling provision is it's a real challenge. If you look at when they did the King's Cross development which is the biggest infrastructure project in London for several years there was no cycling provision at all it wasn't you know it, it wasn't even a consideration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody, mm. nobody, however many years nobody put their hand up and said um bikes? Mm. Didn't have. I think there needs to be more consideration as well of, of how to join up transport. So not only having bike routes to and from and in and out of stations, but, for example, um, I've been to so many places. I mean, Canada's a good example, where they have bike racks on the fronts of buses. Right. Uh, which just seems like such an obvious and brilliant thing. So you can ride as far as you want, then you can put your bike on the bus. It's a sort of a why not? Like, why, why would you not do that? Because I mean, yes. trains in particular, bikes and trains mm. go together marvellously. Except the, the, in this country. The very first bike ride that ever happened in Britain was to, uh, was to Euston Station. The very first... It was a man called... I've forgotten his name now. I knew it. I wrote a book about it. Damn I wrote a book outside. You can buy my book. You can find out the man's oh, name. Good luck. Well done. It will, it will, good save. Uh, Rowley Turner. Rowley Turner was the man's name. Um, who was going to make bikes in Coventry. And he brought an example of a velocipede from Paris in the late 1860s, which was the first bike ever brought into, into Britain. And he rode it along Cheapside and up to Euston Station, and he put it on a train at Euston and took it to Coventry. No problems. First bike in Britain, on the train, on you go, sir. It was easier to do that than it would be now. Um, do, do you have any uh, despotic solutions, uh, Michael? That you uh, I, quite, I, I, I quite like Emily's despotic solution. I mean, I, I, think, I think that is... That's the despotic solution, is just to impose all this. Um, one of the things that I think is going to be difficult about cycling infrastructure in London is my, it's kind of a pet theory, but I think I can justify it, which is that at the minute, a very large proportion of regular London commuters are fast, they're riding over longer distances. Um, I have a suspicion, although I can't prove it, um, Rachel may know better than I do, I have a notion that, that the average length of a commute in London is longer than it is in Copenhagen or in, in Amsterdam. I mean, you, you and I tried to solve this by getting some statistics off Strava. Yeah. Which, which didn't really help because all we discovered was that massively more commuters in London upload all their commutes to Strava. Yeah. But in a way, I think that's nearly part of the issue. If you're uploading your commute to Strava, you're clearly not putting a couple of baguettes in a basket and riding home from the shop. You know, that, a, yeah. and I'm thinking these people are Strava muters now. I've invented this word for them. Oh, nice. um, and, and I wonder if 
there's already now such a diversity of cyclists in London because in order to make an infrastructure work, we have to kind of, to some extent, produce a degree of homogeneity that we don't have because cycling provision in London hasn't been created by planners. It's been kind of burst aside by cyclists. It's, it's a different dynamic, and a lot of the cyclists are going to want a sort of cycling that doesn't fit very well with the kind of classical model that we're all, I think, thinking about. Have I got that wrong? About the, well, about the trip lengths, I mean, in terms of the, the balance of trips, it's not actually that massively different between um, England and the Netherlands, certainly as a, at a country level. I'm not so sure about London specifically, but London's trip lengths in London are generally shorter than the rest of the country for all modes. So there is, there is that tail-off, um, but maybe slightly less so than, than, than there is over there. But people, people are making lots of short trips. Maybe what it is partly is invisible cyclists. So, again, this is possibly to do with this perception cyclists are all middle class which is not you know if you look at uh, you know socioeconomic status across the country is not really the case I mean it's t- the case a little bit more in London but I think a lot of cycling that people do is a, is a bit invisible because maybe we are focusing on those middle class commuters more than the other cyclists who are maybe doing short trips to the shop and so on and we're not really we're not really focusing on them maybe their trips are not record uh, you know are not um, are not considered so much so I think it is partly a perception issue um I think we might have come to the time to take some questions from the floor, if, uh, if the panel are happy. Keen. Uh, now, I believe we've got uh, uh, some kind LSE people with microphones, so I am going to ask, uh, can we have a microphone for the gentleman in the uh, orange top? Great. Um, if I can ask you to wait for the microphone, and then when you've got the microphone, tell us... It said in my notes that I needed to ask you your affiliation. But um, interpret that how you like. Just tell us who you are and where you're from. Or My name's David. I'm from, I live in Hackney and I'm a member of the LCC, etc. I want to join two things that Rachel said together. And the first thing is about e-bikes, which seems to be even further behind Germany and the Netherlands, and the fact that British don't like children. Is it because... That's your view, but is it because we just don't like e-bikes, we see them as cheating, or is it because people don't want to travel on e-bikes because it's just like uh, I feel unsafe on a bike, so an e-bike's no different? So is it, or is it a bit of both? Because I think e-bikes are a fantastic solution, and uh, we just, you, you don't see that many around. Yeah, I do... Um well, should I, or are we taking a yeah, bit yeah, of time? Yeah, um, Yeah, I d- it is really interesting, that point, because when I did the cycling cultures uh, research, which is kind of my first big foray into cycling research, people, the, one of the big things that came up is, I'm not a proper cyclist, and this whole, you know, what is a cyclist? And one of the, one of the things that meant you weren't a proper cyclist was using an e-bike. And, and this woman speaking to me, I'm not really a cyclist, I use an e-bike. And um, people, it, it seemed incredible that if you had electric assist, then, you, you, you know, you, your status as a cyclist was somehow was somehow threatened and I think there is that kind of it goes with this kind of tradition of what cycling has been like in this country that you have to be you supposedly have to be fit brave strong pedaling all the time that kind of thing Um, and I think as we change the infrastructure and the cycling environment and the broader policy environment hopefully that will make it easier to be that kind of cyclist and we will see that change because yes the potential and London out of London there's a lot of potential for use of e-bikes but if you look at Cornwall it's incredible Cornwall you know that could really be transformed there, too. There, there is a lot of uptake in the industry. I mean, all the industry um, 
magazines and things are talking a lot mm. about e-bikes and there is actually quite a lot of uptake and quite a lot of interest and it's kind of it's very much the thin end of it but I think we're going to see a lot of e-bikes in the next two or three years they're probably taking inspiration from e-cigarettes aren't they thinking yes I'm sure James um, here's another question gentleman in the, uh, in the black t-shirt okay. hi Steve Smith from Newham Cyclists um, I think the big issue, is, it seems to me, has been with a kind of political will to in, uh, see cycling as part of the solution rather than part of a problem that exists. Um, and you've seen that with, the, with initiatives like Mini Holland, where there's been these um, initiatives to promote cycling, um, and yet it's quite often seen as as a threat to the way people get around and do their normal journeys and commutes. Um, so I think the, it takes a lot of political bravery to initiate effective change in terms of promoting cycling. And, and I, don't, I think we've had that on, on occasion. Even Boris Johnson sort of uh, made the superhighways happen because he was a cyclist. But, um, you know, the, there's... There's, there is definitely a, a strong pushback against the, 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 you know, the, the advances that we make. And I think um, there could be a lot more in terms of publicity around the benefits that um, so we all know that cycling brings. And is your question then... My question is, how do we get the political uh, will to, um, um, right. to change? Okay. Um, and, and I suppose, relatedly, you know... Sadiq Khan, do we think his political will is adequately strong in, in, in relation to, uh, to cycling? I mean, it seems to me that we've lost a little bit of ground in the last year, but on the other hand, he's recently supported many Holland schemes in Kingston right. and in Enfield, so we certainly don't seem to be unrolling everything that happened. Right. That, that has happened up to this point. Uh, so maybe is that just a little bit of a wobble, a little bit of somebody getting kind of to grips with the issues and working out where they go next, or is it, you know, it's, as I say, politically I always feel a little bit, I'm probably politically quite pessimistic. Right. Um, my feeling about cycling in the UK is that it, it all hangs off not very much. It hangs off a handful of politicians who have the will to push things through despite the objections. It hangs off Team Sky, it hangs off the, the, the British Olympic team because... Very few people, I think very few people think, you know, if, if a bloke from Kilburn can win the Tour de France, by God, I can ride to the office. I, I don't think that's the way it works. But I think that sort of thing makes it easier for Cycling UK or for British Cycling to lobby a London mayor. I think, that, I think Bradley Wiggins gets Chris Boardman into the room with Boris Johnson. And I think the, the, there's, there's a PR connection that way. Um, and there's not very much holding it all up. And it's in the nature of things that, that people are reactionary. I mean, cycling has enormous benefits, but in the short term, the first thing you have to do to encourage cycling is take road space away from other road users. And of course they're going to object. People are naturally conservative. There's almost no group. I mean, nobody liked the train when they invented that. <laughs> Emily, do you, do you agree with that analysis? And, do you, and particularly with the, the political will thing, do you, do you share that sense that it's that political will to actually force change is, is, is vital or do you think there's bigger, bigger sort of uh, dynamics at work which almost make it I think I, I agree partially with Michael in that the politics of cycling and the political sort of clout is fairly fragile 
I don't feel I have a very clear sense of of who is driving to use the wrong metaphor entirely. <laughs> um, I think there is a lot to be said for the sort of groundswell of grassroots movements and how much influence that can have. Um, there are things that worry me in that I think something I wanted to say when Rachel answered the last question was it's interesting that we still talk about who is a cyclist, what is a cyclist. Cyclist is an identity and I think that's both a strength but also a weakness because having a particular identity that a lot of people feel like they don't fit into or want to jealously guard as their own and keep other people out and all of that can be a bit of a problem and it's it's a bit comical how you've now got all these <clears throat> sort of fractured cycling tribes and for example you know humbugs like me who don't want all the cycling infrastructure because it's less fun so I think if I think about where where would sort of solid, sustainable, meaningful change come from, I have to say I don't actually know. I would suspect it would be more driven by campaigners and it would rely on there being a good, broad base of opinion and will and drive. I'm not entirely confident in that, but I'm optimistic. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't forget that you know, Boris Johnson was mayor for quite a long time before he built some bike tracks. It was, it was that sort of um, popular movement, really, coalition that pushed him to do so. So it wasn't, you know, and that, some of those changes that have happened, I think, are enduring. So some of the people, talking to some of the scheme designers at Transport for London, say, who designed the embankment cycle track, who will say, I've never had a response like this. I have people, you know, emailing me saying, my, my um, six-year-old daughter can now ride in London. I never thought this would be possible. And the kind of feedback because if you're a transport planner um, policy maker you often get a lot of moaning the whole time people moan at you and it, everything's always getting worse so actually the fact that those people got that positive feedback and those people are still there institutional learning has happened I, I, I agree it is still it, it can still easily be threatened and anything that tries to take space away from cars is always a massive challenge whether it's cycling walking public transport even in Copenhagen taking away car parking spaces is still really hard so it's, it's going to be an ongoing struggle I think but you know the damage that the car is causing to our city and the fact that the arguments are now on terrains of something, you know, things like air pollution. And obviously there's some completely bizarre arguments now that get made, like cycle tracks um, cause pollution. Zebra crossings, I heard, cause pollution. Um, And of course not. Of course it's the motor vehicles that cause pollution. But the fact that those arguments are made like that, rather than assumption that um, you don't have to engage with that. I think that does show that something has shifted and people care a lot about things like air pollution and health. That, that's such an interesting uh, perspective on the on the planners. I, I'd never really thought of the, uh, the you know city planners and what they get out of their jobs because I suppose you know like if it's well I've redesigned the uh, you know the phasing of this junction and you know I've found two seconds here you know I guess that's a win. But if somebody actually says to you, oh my God, you've changed my family's life, you know that's extraordinary, isn't it? So uh, it's sort of agents of change in a in a much bigger way. And you do have to. I mean, I. Um, I, I teach on a transport planning MSC and I have seen a change that, you know, over the years, cycling used to be seen as a career dead end. You know, you would be the cycling officer, people would not really speak to you, you would, you know, be the guy with the yellow jacket. Driving a pro <laughs> In the corner. Um, but now, you know, it is seen, cycling and walking are seen as things that you can build your career on. That really matters, you know, that people see that and see that as something that you can do and that that is professionally valued. It does matter. Uh, another question. Uh, let me just up the stairs there. Just yep, you. Hi, um, I'm Helen. I'm from Walton Forest. Um, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, 
I want to ask the panel, uh, how do you cope with the bike lash? For example, today, the standard is leading with a story about the Tavistock Place bike lane and the fact that despite only 21% of respondents to the consultation objecting, the, ca- the council are actually going to do a review of the scheme. Um, also, in Walton Forest, there was a petition of 6,000 signatures, um, which has been dumped on the desk of the new council leader, and she's already apparently, I've heard inside info, is wavering a little bit on cycling. So I agree totally, cycling is very fragile wherever. Um, and politicians, I think, are very interested in short-term gains. And still, I think nobody is actually addressing, like, discouraging people from driving and actually taking away parking spaces, which is one of the biggest problems. Like, you know, you look on any street, one of the reasons you have to take the lane is because you're having to ride out the door zone. You know, so... Most trips in London, I think it's about two-thirds are under five um, kilometres. So how do you actually get people out of their cars? Most people are doing, like, one person in a massive car as well. So how do we kind of change that at a political level and at a, and at a personal level? How do we get those people out of their cars? Yeah. So there's a lot of... Well, I think particularly um, the, the, the element of your question about the parking, I think that's, I mean, that's something that I, I don't really know anything about, but it sounds as though uh, that withdrawal of parking spaces is a, is, a, is a tool that's being used in other European cities specifically to take out it's, it's, always, it's always difficult though and I think maybe, I mean this is um, maybe the kind of answer researcher might give I guess, we, that we need to um, do more to look at these, some of these issues and the problems um, that are caused by the way that we deal with car parking I think and I'm thinking back to a study by um, Ian Roberts where I think it was, where looking at the role of um, where there is car parking on the street, the impact of that on pedestrian injury and I think people feel like they have a right to park their car in front of their house but actually there are implications, it might mean that um, you you know, a child is more likely to be hit crossing the road. We need to bring those kind of things into the discussion, I think. And um, when I was doing research on the kind of cycling environment that people want for their children, which, again, we're such a hypocritical country. We say we want children to cycle, but actually nobody had really looked at what kind of cycling environment we need to provide for children to cycle. And one of the things that came up a lot in the comments was car parking, that, um, you know, for an adult to cycle down a street with car parking, um, you know, is problematic enough, but for a child who cannot necessarily necessarily be seen over that car parking so I think we need to bring some of those negatives more into the discussion because there is a strong assumption among still even in London that people have the right to park and they have the right to drive and some cities um, you know the assumption is you don't have the right to park and that you'll be told if you do have the right to park but I mean it's the same with any external cost to anything I mean it was I mean look at the length of time it took through to get smoking bans in in public places that was something that went on for decades because it's very very hard to get people to accept that there's an external cost if it's an external cost they don't care and it's kind of in a way it's the same with 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 an external benefit because more cycling air pollution people get where they're going faster the NHS saves money if more people in London cycled everybody's tax bill would go down but that's not a connection that it's very easy to get people to see in anything, never mind the short term, it's very hard to get people to see that connection in the medium term because what they see is they can't park in front of their house. And any issue like that is politically extremely difficult. And in cycling, I, I'm always a little unsure when, when we start talking about we've got to force people out of their cars. Because at the point where we start forcing people out of their cars, at the point where we get a very serious backlash, and you know, as I think we've all said at some point this afternoon, there's a fragility to it. 
Um, and that's exactly kind of, that's the chink that, that somebody can put a crowbar into, is that kind of hostility that comes from people feeling that they're being forced to do something that they don't want to do. I, I think it has to have a, a strong element of pull as well as a small element of push, not the other way around. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm excessively snowflakey. I think I, I waver because I am a bit more radical about this than probably most people. I do think we should just ban all cars. Um, I spoke so, to yes. a Norwegian at the weekend who said apparently they're going to, um, and I, you might know more about this than me, they're about to ban cars from Oslo. But um, all I the time? That is under... The person I spoke to sort of said, oh, it's not happened yet. Wait till it happens, basically. Oh, okay. um, hopefully it will happen. But yes, And he used the analogy of a smoking ban and said, you know, when, when all the smoking bans came in, there was an enormous hue and cry, and within a couple of months, everyone had just accepted mm-hmm. that that was how things worked and said, why didn't we do this before? It's just so mm-hmm. much better. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, worked pretty well. It would be much harder to ban cars. I think, more realistically, my feeling is that it needs to be an incredibly gentle, you know, several push factors and several pull factors so that people basically feel like they've made the decision themselves based on how the world is around them and we've just subtly engineered the world around them to push them towards that decision. So you'd be looking at um, multiple mild disincentives to drive your car plus multiple incentives to consider other modes of transport and I think that would be the way you would actually do it. And that's maybe the way it's happening, and we just need to keep, you know, looking at all the ways in which people are being nudged and maybe crank one up here and there and ease one off elsewhere. People will complain about the nudging process, though. I'm reminded, and this is an anecdote, let me, um, of a colleague I knew who um, would complain to me at great length, um, at another university, at great length, because they were bringing in car parking charges. This was totally unfair. I, um, and, you know, he couldn't possibly travel by any other means than car. He had to carry all these books with him and everything, and he complained and he complained and he complained, even though he knew that I was probably not that sympathetic to him. <laughs> then it, it, they, brought, they brought it in. And suddenly he discovered, well, actually, no, I can use another method to get to work. And he was telling me about how he discovered panniers. So, you know, <laughs> complained and complained and complained and then changed his behaviour. What a clever man. Yeah, so in fact, invent them, perhaps. Excellent. Another question. Uh, on the front row here, the red top. Thank you. My name's Joanna. I'm from Hackney, but I'm about to move to Waltham Forest into a car-free development, which is fine by me, so I won't be allowed to apply for a residence parking permit. Um, but my question is actually about dangerous cyclists. Um, while it might not be particularly dangerous to go through red lights, you do see a lot of cyclists that exercise dangerous cycling, and the number of cyclists you see not stopping for pedestrians on zebra crossing, crossings is quite shocking. And so really, what do the panel think we can do to address dangerous cyclists giving us all a bad name, or is it just something that we need to accept will always happen? Um, I think one of, one of the things that I hope we get away from is the perception of the public that all cyclists are controlled by a single central intelligence. <laughs> we are controlled by radio beams from the top of Canary Wharf or something, because I agree there's a perception that, you know, as, as Emily was saying, you, you, you'll stand at a, at a red light. Somebody else goes through the red light, and someone in the car next to you will complain about the fact that this other guy... Because they think somehow you all know each other. <laughs> um, and, and that we all live in a, a big house. And we talk to each other every night. And, um, so I, I think... And the more cyclists we get, and the more people know cyclists, I think that will naturally waste away over time. I'm all for, for policing cycling better. Um, because I think it has to... I, mean, I think we have to accept that if we're going to have a lot more cycling, people are going to have to become more 
cognizant and more obedient of the rules because that's just the way it's going to have to work. But I don't think it's down to, to, to vigilante cyclists to enforce rules against each other. I want to see much more, much more active policing of, of cycling. Um, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. And how do you think that would work in practice? Do we need very, very fast Poli- policemen on bicycles to chase them? You when they, when they first introduced the motor car in the, in the 1890s, Surrey police had 12 cyclists for chasing down speeding motorbikes. <laughs> <laughs> so we could bring that back. That uh, yes. a nice career change, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking for something to do post-cycle career. <laughs> and is, is sort of... Um, education part of it I mean you know like famously you don't have to have any kind of qualification or pass any kind of exam to be a cyclist is that is that practical or a desirable part of the solution I, I think if you look at places where cycling is you know works well then people are not forced to take a test it is not workable I mean I think um, you do also need to look at the scale of the harm that's caused and while cyclists may often do things that are annoying um, one of the things you need to I, I think I often think it's silly to, re- to remember is that they would be posing a lot greater risk to me if they were actually in a car and the, the, um, the rates of injury caused by you're a lot more likely to be injured by when you're on the pavement by a motor vehicle coming onto the pavement than by a cyclist on the pavement and that's not to say that you know i all road users shouldn't behave better i mean and i'm hoping that as cycling becomes more widespread um so for instance when you've got um cycle tracks and you've got a um you've got a red light if the two people at the front are stopped then people behind will be stopped as well whereas if you've got um a more traditional situation with advanced stop lanes then it's actually physically easier for people to jump the light so there's also things to do with infrastructure and to do with um to do with the kind of demographics and the breadth of people cycling I think there's a possibility as well that as as there are fewer and fewer cars in London, which is happening and will happen, optimistically, there might be a bit more of a tilt and people might start to turn on the car drivers a bit more and say, well, you know, these, these selfish people driving their enormous vehicles into London and look at them, they're going on the pavements, they're killing people and perhaps they will start to take the place of the evil cyclists. I suspect I'm being a bit optimistic there, but I mean... We can find alternative villains. Maybe that's not the best solution. <laughs> Maybe not. Another question. Uh, right, Hi there. Um, I'm Giles. I prefer dogs over cats. Um, firstly, thank you all for your contributions this afternoon. I really enjoyed hearing stuff, your opinions and thoughts. It's been broadening and informative. Um, Regarding something that um, Rachel said, just an anecdote, is everything getting worse? Um, It feels like the public conversation about cycling over the last couple of years has been uh, broadly focused on headcams and seeing incidents and terrible things happening between drivers and cyclists and associated stuff like that. Um, But also, I'm aware that over the last five or six years since the Olympics, since we in winning the Tour de France, there's been a general upswing in cycling anyway. Are the two? Are we just? Are we just? There, is there more stuff happening on the street? Is there more aggression, or is it just that there's more people cycling, so there's more stuff happening? It's you know, is it all proportional? So I guess anecdotally, for people like yourselves who think about cycling and look at data about it, historically, is there has there been as, as much aggression on the street, or is it just that we're more aware of it because technology and social media and the like are making are bringing it to our attention more than before? 
Is there a sort of a, a data answer for that I, one, do you I, think? I don't think I was thinking that, yeah, about the measuring aggression on the streets. I don't think that one could... Uh, I don't think that the data available to answer a question in relation to aggression and I think it's very it's hard to have a viewpoint that's not quite anecdotal and it's very it is very easy to feel that things are getting worse all the time in terms of behavior maybe that's part of getting older everything <laughs> you, just, you can play more about people's behavior um, but I, in terms of certainly um, injury risk is something I've been looking at quite a bit lately and it's quite concerning to me that we haven't seen as cycling has gone up we haven't seen the level of safety and numbers effect that I would think we should be seeing that if you look at higher cycling countries, and I think that's partly to do with the figures that I'm looking at going up to 2015, so we're not seeing some of that new infrastructure having come in. But I do think that that the figures on risk are not as positive as they should be. That said, risk generally goes down for all... um, for all modes, you would expect that to happen year on year, but still cycling is not seeing that jump that I think it should be doing. I, mean, I think that I think the reason we see a lot more of those kind of reports and so on, so it's become part of the conversation. I, I only look at the Daily Mail website for professional research reasons. Um, <laughs> but the three things you always find are there's always a big picture of lots of penguins with an owl somewhere in it, and you've got to try and find the owl. And there's always a picture of a shop that's been abandoned for 50 years. And there's always a head uh, helmet cam story. And actually, I almost take it as a positive because 15 years ago, no one would even have understood what the hell that was. It would have been irrelevant. Um, it would have been a story about geomorphology. No one would know what to do with it. And the fact now that cyclists, yeah, everybody hates cyclists, but it's better than being ignored is almost the way I feel about it. We, you know, cycling is part of that conversation. It's in the papers. People want to talk about it. People click on it on websites. If you put it on a radio phone-in, people phone-in. You know, it's a thing, and the first step from getting from being irrelevant to being all-pervasive, it getting th- we need to get through this hump. So it, it, it doesn't it doesn't excessively concern me. I think my experience on the road, and I am having to be so careful because you're always so distorted by hindsight. But I've been cycling in London for over ten years now. I think it has got better. I think slightly. There's still a lot of good stuff and a lot of bad stuff goes on. But I think more and more I encounter drivers who know what they're doing around cyclists, partly just because they drive in London regularly, they share the road with cyclists. I think particularly the, the, like the cab drivers, some of them are awful, a lot of them aren't. Um, a lot of them have not only begun to differentiate between the good cyclists and the bad cyclists, if you want to make it that black and white, but when I was a courier they would normally... They accepted that I knew what I was doing slightly more than, say, someone wobbling crazily on a brand-new hybrid. Um, but also I've had more and more encounters with people who... So a couple of months ago, I was apologised to by two cab drivers in the space of one minute. Yeah. And I've had things like that. I've had encounters with drivers who are probably cyclists themselves or who get what's going on, or who at least are seeing things from my perspective a bit more. They're seeing what I'm dealing with on the road and how, you know, the concerns I might have, the reason I might be riding the way I'm, I'm riding. And they've said, after you, or don't worry about it, or things like that. And when I've had blazing rows, they've been slightly more nuanced and rational. So I think things are marginally better. And I think it could be as a result of the fact that the the cycling, driving, road wars conversation has moved up into the national media and the mainstream a little bit more than before, which 
in some ways is going to polarise us a bit more, but in some ways actually has made it part of the conversation and people are perhaps able to sit there with their Daily Mail on their windscreen and read it and think, well, where do I actually come down on this? Oops, sorry. <laughs> well, on that positive and encouraging note, uh, I'm going to draw this to a close and say thank you very much to our tremendous panel, Rachel, Emily and Michael, and invite you all to uh, give them a round of applause. To-